Hi folks, this is Brian Moriarty, your Nerds on History co-host. On our podcast, we have shared lots of interesting facts, like the fact that George Washington was a cross-dresser and that Thurgood Marshall knew jiu-jitsu. If you find those things insightful and funny, well, have we got a podcast for you. Nerds on Film. It's like the Nerds on History podcast, but with a lot more swear words and no filter whatsoever. Enjoy. Sound check. Check one, check one, two. Sound check. Check one, check two. We're good. All right. Hey, Brian, how was rehearsal? <sighs> I Okay, I can imagine. For listeners, for those of you who don't know, Brian is in the uh, the leading role in a, uh, a new play uh, titled Me, Myself, and My Left Leg, Winston. Uh, and it's a fascinating take on a gentleman who has multiple personality disorder uh, who's also coming to terms with his belief that his left leg is the reincarnation of Winston Churchill. And uh, it, it is, um, well, it, it's unique. And I can imagine it being rather draining. Yeah, it is. It really is, because I'm, I'm not feeling so hot anyway. But uh, on top of that, they want me to do Churchill's voice. But they want me to do some weird form of a ventriloquism where it, it comes from the leg. I've heard of this, where you actually you move and contort the muscles in the leg to create a, a, a realism of uh, of a face. Can I can I actually can I do it for you and see if you tell yeah, me how, absolutely. how it sounds? Mm-hmm. Okay. How was that? It's pretty good. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmon. And I am Brian Moriarty. Yes, you are. And you are not starring in a, uh, in a, in a one-man play. No. You, you play two different characters. Can I kind of want to write that play now. I, I will give you the rights to it. I, <laughs> I invented it about 30 seconds before we recorded. <laughs> I think it's a great idea, personally. It could be rather interesting. I it think it would be, be a comedy, though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Although I had originally planned it to be a drama. Oh, well, you know, the creative process, it just it always thinks it's one thing and ends up being another. Look at Romeo and Juliet. That was a comedy. That, what? Really? <laughs> you, have you ever seen Shakespeare in Love? Uh, that's the one with Gwyneth Paltrow and um, who, who played Shakespeare? Joseph Fiennes. I don't even know who that is, I don't think. He's Ray Fiennes' younger brother. Oh, that clarified. <laughs> <laughs> Ray Fiennes, Lord Voldemort. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's funny how Harry Potter just comes in and everything, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, the funny, it's not true at all, but the the thing that was great about when the play opens, or the movie opens, is he's at work on his next play and he's having writer's block, but he's currently calling it Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. <laughs> yeah, I remember that part. <laughs> yeah. I would like to have think it would it would have happened that way, but it probably didn't, actually. Anyway, how you doing, sir? I'm doing. I'm. I'm much better. For those of you who have listened to the past two episodes, I was ill. Mm-hmm. I was not feeling well at all. I was laid up and sick with symptoms for probably a good five days straight. I missed four days of work. I remember. And then I got my wife sick. I got Martha sick. And uh, even still, though, we we still managed to record episodes while we were not feeling well. But I'm back now, and I feel better. And I hope our listeners can tell. So you're feeling better? Yes. Uh, that's nice. Isn't it, though? Yeah. Good yeah, for not you. you. Nope, not me. You're not feeling good, are you? Nope, not at all. <laughs> oh, I Nope, I woke up this morning and just felt like crap. But I'm here, folks. I'm here. 
hopefully my voice sounds decently audible and listenable for that matter. Um, and we will we will stick it out as we always do. Yes, we will. In fact, we decided that we would do a topic today um, that would lift our spirits and and um, <laughs> and not at all tie directly into our feelings. No, not, not, not at all. No, not at all. No subliminal psychological connection to our states of mind whatsoever. Nope, nope. nope. Or the way that we're feeling for that matter. None. None. Zero. Fact, we'll get to that. Let's put that on the back burner for a moment. Because ladies Shall and we? gentlemen. Good. It is another This Week in Listener Feedback. All right. Well, our first message comes from Stephanie, uh, which is titled Greetings from Dublin. And it's a very, uh, very detailed uh, email with lots and lots of lovely things to say. Uh, So I will paraphrase considerably. Um, Pretty much she uh, states that she's been listening to both podcasts, that being uh, this podcast and, of course, our sister podcast, Nerds on Film. Uh, and she says that we're doing a fab job, uh, that she laughs and learns with everyone. She uh, really appreciates our episodes on Egypt, which I take as a very personal compliment. Thank you very much. As you know, it's my passion and it's my love. And I hope you can tell with every episode that I record about Egypt. I hope it kind of comes out to you across the airwaves, so to speak. Um, and she also wanted to let us know that uh, you can uh, climb on the second biggest pyramid in Egypt. That would be the Pyramid of Khafre which is built right near the Pyramid of Khufu. Interesting fact, it's slightly smaller than Khufu's Pyramid, but it looks larger because he built it on higher ground than his father's. Aha. Clever. Uh, But in addition to uh, that, you also will be chased by the police. Uh, She recommends that you take horseback to evade them, not camel, as uh, camels don't move particularly quickly. I'm going to assume... She has some sort of personal experience with this and did not spend a night or a week, for that matter, in a Cairo jail. So I'm very, uh, very pleased that uh, that is most likely the case. And she also had some very nice and wonderful comments to say about nerds on film. But considering that's a different podcast, I will leave those lovely comments for our uh, our sister podcast. That's true. And we also have one we just got actually on Thursday, uh, which is more of a clarification than anything. And that comes from our buddy Dino. Who do you know? Uh, who hey. also mentioned us this morning on Twitter, saying he almost—I uh, think he said something involving his pants and something bad happening to them because he was so geeked out that he got his name shouted out. Well, sir, you get another one this week, but this because is because you actually have something very, very interesting to contribute. So thank you very much. The first one's always free. The second one they have to earn. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read it off, kind of off the cuff here. First off, hey guys, I finally caught up with all the Nerds on History episodes. I love the show, and we love you, Dino. As you said, edutainment, and I believe that was the word, I learned so much, and I'm also just cracking up at certain parts throughout it. It's truly great. Well, I'm 19 and a sophomore at Arcadia University, as we've established in previous episodes, uh, in Glenside, Pennsylvania, studying history and politics. Well, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, so I practically grew up on cheesesteaks, Oh, so he's going to answer our question about the, the cheesesteak situation. Right, right, That we right. had a couple months ago, or weeks ago, with the Wheel of History. Uh, he said, while I am not a fan of whiz, I prefer provolone cheese, as I think most people in California would as well. But most places in Philly will ask you with or without. Uh, but many people will get it with whiz, and many tours of outsiders that I have seen will pretty much force the tourists to get it with the whiz. Then he actually has a great piece of commentary about our coming-of-age rituals. 
and I'll just summarize it briefly. So just like how I am was ingrained with Catholicism, Dino was ingrained with the Greek Orthodox uh, Church, or what he likes to call Go-Arch, Greek Orthodox Archdiocese, uh, because I think the entire United States is under one archbishop for the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, he wraps it up with, I hope these clarifications helped you, and if you have anything regarding Greek, Greece, Greek Orthodoxy, or Philadelphia, just email me. And he gave us his email. Uh, I guess, standard my friends, Constantinos or Dino. Dino, well, thank you so much. So, quite literally, as you're reading that fantastic uh, feedback from Dino, we got another piece of feedback in the uh, the good old inbox. Just wow, popped really? up. Yeah, literally, while you were reading that. Just popped up. Uh, what a really wonderful email. Um, I'll, lead, I'll read the very first line, and then I'll, I'll paraphrase the rest. But it says, first, let me get the fanboy stuff out of the way. I'm on the road a lot for my job, and I listen to quite a few podcasts. Uh, I've given up on today's music and political sports talk. It's just no. You two manage to pick interesting subjects on a weekly basis, and I learn something with each new podcast. I'm sure you get this a lot, but the episode concerning the origin and evolution of the voluntary isolation room which for our listeners who haven't heard that episode, that's our episode all about the history of the bathroom, was particularly interesting. Also, the April Fool's episode was a stunning success. So, you know, uh, and he goes on uh, to say that uh, he's very much entertained by uh, the podcast and uh, very appreciative of the uh, of the work that we do, and invited us, actually, to uh, join him in participating with his blog. Hmm. Now, as our listeners know, we have our own blog on nerdonomy.com, uh, but this is the first time that we've ever had a kind of cross-blog reach-out, if you will. We've done it with other podcasts before, but never with a blog. And uh, the blog is called Five Reads Blog, and it's on WordPress, so it's fivereadsblog.wordpress.com. And uh, it's a really interesting concept. Uh, uh, the guest blogger, if you will, will post about five books that have influenced them, changed their lives, motivated them. Uh, essentially, it's kind of revealing what it is that this person has read in their lives that makes them who they are, along with a brief uh, biography about kind of who this person is who is uh, who's posting this, uh, this, this blog here. So uh, I think it's a really great idea, and I'm down for it if you're down for it. I'm definitely down for it. Okay, so uh, we will do it. We'll contact uh, the Five Reads blog. And let them know that we're interested. And listeners, in a future episode, we will let you know when it's time to head on over to the blog to see our uh, our post. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll have it linked on our blog. And we'll be blogging about blogs while they blog about blogging. And blogs and blog, 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 blah, 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 blog. Are you right? I'm okay now. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm okay <clears throat> now. I had a mild stroke. Moving forward, I think, is a very good idea. Uh, so, again, thank you all for your feedback. We love to hear from you. We love to mention you on the show. We love to participate with you with Absolutely. your media endeavors. And thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all the people who have uh, mentioned us in the past couple of uh, just the, the past couple days. Uh, Dino gave us a mention, as we talked about. I believe Stephanie gave us a mention on Twitter. And uh, as always, thank you to Stephen for the continuous, consistent feedback about mm-hmm. every episode. Yep. We look forward to your reviews on each episode, so keep them coming. We'll, we don't always respond, but please know that we are deeply appreciative of that relationship that you've formed with us. So, um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of deep relationships and bonding and death, let's get to today's topic. Why did we bring death into the conversation? Well, it is oftentimes the ultimate conclusion in today's topic. All right. I'll, I'll just go with it. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm just saying, let's get this party started. And 
listeners, again, you know, I was very ill. Brian is unfortunately not feeling terribly well. And we thought it would be terribly ironic and very appropriate to do a history of epidemics. Why not? Let's talk about illness. Yay! Yay! Huzzah! He says with tempered enthusiasm. Well, I'm feeling better now. So. You're feeling better. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm now intentionally playing the mopey sick guy, and I think it's a good contrast between you and your bright disposition. So, illness, history. <laughs> Where are we going to start with this? I'm thinking we start in the ancient world, as we tend to do. Yes. Yeah, we kind of we kind of jump on these things chronologically. Chronologically, and where do you think? Where do you think I might just start this? Hmm, I think you're going to start somewhere in ancient... Syria. Oh, really? Hmm? Oh, shoot, I thought you were going to say Egypt. Well, by way of Syria, but more to the point, Egypt. Aha! Y- yes, Brian, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, we, you heard Leave me talk... Leave it to Eric to bring it to ancient Egypt, yeah, I'm just ex- saying. Yes, hey, all, they say all roads lead to Rome. I think that's garbage. I think all roads lead to Egypt, personally, and Rome. But mostly Egypt. Anyway. Uh, but mostly Egypt. Yes. <laughs> so, so Egypt, uh, as you have heard me speak of many, many a time, uh, had a very, very long and very detailed history. Uh, we know about many of Egypt's rulers. And while it wasn't uh, recorded by the, the historians of ancient Rome in quite as much detail, we do know of particular occurrences of uh, illness and sickness, even though they're, they're general uh, idea was to keep everything happy, light, and positive, and talk about the good stuff so as to preserve the good stuff for all of time. Sometimes, though, it got really bad, and there was no way of getting around how bad it really was. Uh, and you've heard me talk about the Pharaoh Akhenaten before, during Egypt's new kingdom. And in the reign of his father, actually, we see an introduction of a terrible sickness by way of trade routes through ancient Assyria. And these symptoms, um, which we don't know... Exactly, because they weren't exactly described in great detail, if if hardly any detail at all, but we can surmise based off of some of the remains that have actually been found, uh, we think it was probably bubonic plague. So the famous plague. The the plague. You know, Uh, when it comes to plagues, I think that one's my favorite. uh, It it is very popular, although pneumonic plague does try to kind of uh, take the stage. You know, it's a little showy. Well, you know know why? Because it's got true staying power. It goes away for a little bit, but it always comes back strong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. It, it does tend to go in cycles. Um, it's it's kind of like unfashionable pants. <laughs> yeah, like the 1970s, like bell bottoms and, and things of that nature. They, they, they go away, and you're glad they're gone, but then they come back in this huge reemergence, and they just kind of spread out all over the place. Uh, I, I'm confused here. When did bell bottoms have a comeback? Bill Bottoms came back in, like, the 90s. Oh, that's right, they did. But not. For, I thought for women, though, not for men. It doesn't matter. They're still awful. And they came back, <laughs> just like the bubonic plague. Fair enough. I'm just All saying. Right. Anyhow, Egypt, uh, during the reign of the pharaoh Akhenaten and also his father, you had a period where uh, the plague was actually quite devastating and was causing uh, widespread suffering and death throughout the entire country. And during the reign, or I should say just leading up to the reign of Akhenaten, you found that uh, bubonic plague, which does spread very well in close-knit communities, uh, was was doing horrible, horrible stuff. Keep in mind, Egyptian towns and cities uh, were built with very narrow designs. Uh, they had high buildings, usually one- or two-story buildings, uh, but with very narrow passageways. So everyone was kind of all packed together. And they were spreading the disease 
from home to home to home. Uh, there were no real quarantine rules, if you will. And this was even worse when it came to the priesthood, because the priesthood, even though they maintained a very a very clean lifestyle, which they had to do adhere to certain religious uh, traditions and practices, they were still very close quarters, and there was plenty of opportunity for transmission. Some people speculate that Akhenaten had the easier time that he did kind of reinventing Egypt's religion during his reign because of the severe blow to the priesthood during his father's reign that it could actually have been uh, their, uh, their decimation and their particular you know, population that made it all that much easier for people to accept a new god and also you know, get rid of the priests, more or less, or shut them down. So this bubonic plague spread through Egypt by way of Syria. Yes. And so what was the body count? We don't know. Okay, so we, we have an unknown number of people who were killed by this disease. What we haven't gone over yet is how did it spread? Because bubonic plague does not spread, uh, it's not an, not an airborne plague. Yes and no. So bubonic plague is spread originally by uh, a particular bacterium that's contained within fleas. And these fleas are most commonly found on rodents, like rats. So the trade ships that would have been coming from Syria, who would have been uh, in Egypt's ports, probably contained these rats, uh, if not infecting people along the way on the voyage, and then those infected people came into the population and spread it further. Right. And why I say it's not exactly airborne is because pneumonic uh, plague, which it can evolve into if it becomes uh, pneumonia, if it spreads to the lungs, can be passed there by airborne. So the, the bacterium that's in now the human lungs, not in the body of the flea any longer, can be contracted and, and aspirated. And, and cause the, the disease. So is the theory then that the rats would pass to the humans by biting them, or...? No, the rats were just a secondary carrier. The rats usually died. Okay. It was the fleas that would jump bodies, right? So they would leave the dead rat, and they would look for the closest source of blood, which would be oftentimes humans, Gotcha. Right? So it was, it's originally translated through blood, but then if it evolves into pneumonic plague, as you say, yeah. then it can be passed through the air. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you think about aspiration, right, what you're doing is you're, you're bringing it in contact with the mucous membranes in your lungs. Respiration. So Aspiration. Aspiration oh. is the intake of okay. of that of those uh, uh, well, bacteriums. Fine, you and your fancy science terms. I'm just saying. Uh, the other thing would be with bubonic plague, you oftentimes have the swelling of the lymph nodes, uh, which are located in your neck, your armpits, and your groin. And these are very painful. They can swell up to the size of, some reports are the size of eggs. Wow. I mean, they're, they're massive. And they're full of this pus and, and other uh, lymph and what have you. And it's very painful. So for many thousands of years, the idea was, okay, let's relieve the pressure, thus relieving the pain. So the only way to do that is to lance it and release the, the liquid inside. But that would also release the disease. Exactly. In a very transmittable form. And now you're just spreading the disease. And this is how bubonic plague would continue to spread and be nasty and, and cause all these problems uh, throughout history. Uh, even just, you know, within the past 20 years, there have been reports of bubonic plague in the United States, of all places. Hmm. Well, we'll get to that later. Yeah, we'll get to that later. Regardless, though, Egypt, um, during the reign of Akhenaten, had this totally different movement brought about, this whole revolution. And some people speculate, how was it so easy for this to happen? Well, if there was pneumonic, or, excuse me, if there was bubonic plague in Egypt during the reign of his father, 
maybe this was you know justifying for some people how to abandon the older traditions and be more accepting of the new ones coming in. It would also have a double-edged sword because eventually Akhenaten's family would be almost certainly wiped out by this same plague as it re-emerged a few years later. Uh, we don't know this for sure. It's simply speculation, but it's pretty good speculation because we know that there was an illness that swept through Akhetaten, which was his new capital city, uh, and upon his death, which, again, we don't really know if we have his remains or not, and we can't really identify uh, pathology, uh, even if we do, uh, we're not sure how he died, but I wouldn't put it past that whole community probably being uh, greatly ill and, and sickened by this disease. In fact, the people of Egypt today, many of the, the rural people uh, who live out in the small towns and villages near there in Middle Egypt, still consider that area a place of bad omen. Uh, and that was something that you know had continued all throughout Egyptian history, even in the modern age. They still have not resettled this place. Interesting. Some people think it's because, well, they wanted to disassociate with Akhenaten, which I'm sure played a part in it. Others think it may also be uh, due to the, the negative association right. with the plague. Well, just to give our listeners a refresh, Akhenaten was a more controversial of the pharaohs, too, right? Yeah. Because he, correct me if I'm wrong here, he was the one who changed the religion. Yes. Kind of. He, he threw out the traditional pantheon of Egyptian gods. And made it one. He brought... Uh, yes, in favor of one, the Aten. Yeah, right. And it was very much a localized change in the sense that he could really only reinforce it within the hierarchy of the Egyptian government. So his family and their administrators and what have you, he couldn't completely change it and control it for the entire country. Although there are some indications that he diverted funds away from the temples, forcing many of them to close their doors. And as such, kind of cut back on the places that people could go to worship. But it wasn't to the extent that it might sound like. He could only do so much. Sure. Of course. I mean, thinking about more modern representation of what the Catholic Church tried to do with Protestantism, you know, they tried yeah. to wipe it out altogether, and you couldn't because the ideas were already spreading around. And they were already becoming a... St and this is actually the reverse. This is more probably more like what the English tried to do with the Catholics in England. You know, you've already got the existing religion in place. It's virtually impossible to get rid of right. at that point. But bubonic plague wasn't the only thing to plague the ancient world. Ha ha. Ha ha. Just realized there's a slight pun there. Oh, God. Ha ha. Ha ha. Yes. Uh, we also find that uh, a very famous outbreak of what is most likely typhus. We're not 100% sure, but ancient historians have painted a pretty clear picture of what sounds a lot like typhus. Uh, was really the downfall of Athens during the Peloponnesian War. Okay. Uh, and this is, of course, uh, fought during the 1430s BC. Uh, this is a time where, for about 30 years of war, actually, so from 1430 to about 1400 or so, you know, rough, rough dates. I don't remember the exact dates off the top of my head. The Spartans, uh, who had amassed a huge land-based army, were attacking the very wealthy city-state of Athens. Athens, of course, uh, being a very dominating naval tradition, they had very strong trade routes and were a very wealthy city-state, even though they were much smaller than their surrounding areas. Uh, they were also the home to many great philosophers and ideas. and Like democracy? Yeah, exactly. So they were a very tempting target, though, for that reason. And many of their neighbors brought war against them. Uh, they had gotten very good at holding off invading armies. And when it came to the Spartans, who are well-known for being very fierce warriors, 
uh, who at this point were actually even taking assistance from their longtime enemies, the Persians, uh, and using this as uh, additional backup to try to take over the, the Athenians, uh, you have something very interesting happen. Here are wave after wave of Spartans being thrown at the Athenians who are actually able to kind of keep them at bay. And when it seems like the Spartans are just about ready to give up and stop, a horrible sickness strikes uh, Athens. And this is a very, very uh, quick sickness that spreads through the city at an alarming rate, causing the Ath Athenians to kind of pull back and retreat their forces uh, to protect the city and bring in all of their surrounding countrymen. Uh, and in doing so, they were bringing in other infected people who were adding to the illnesses and creating uh, this absolutely terrible, deplorable situation. Because now they're a city under siege. They don't have enough food. They were hoping to keep the Spartans somewhat at bay on land, but harass them in, at the sea with their superior naval force. That's how they had planned to win. Uh, but now their naval force was trying to bring in supplies just to keep the, the city going. So that didn't help them any longer. Now they were under attack in other areas that they had previously been dominant in. Sure. Well, didn't the Persians have a decent navy? Oh, yeah. So the Persians were probably attacking the, the ports. Yeah, but even still, I mean, uh, Athens was, was pretty well protected and taken yeah. care of. Uh, but you have this this really terrible situation where now even Athens' famous leader, famous uh, military leader, um, Heracles, has now become ill. And not just fallen ill, he's dead. Uh, so the entire internal uh, makeup of Athens is now disintegrating and falling apart. The funeral pyres that were being constructed to burn the you know hundreds of people who were dying every single day could be seen by the Spartans who had laid siege to the city, and they were terrified. Mm -hmm. They were afraid. They decided to flee rather than potentially be uh, uh, you know infected. And while you think that that might have been their saving grace, you know, okay, the Spartans are gone now. The army's gone. The siege is over. The decimation that this illness did was so severe that when the Athenians had attempt to regroup and fight back, it was in such a disastrous way that they were forced to eventually surrender. And to kind of put it into perspective, I mean, nobody knows exactly how many people died, but we, we, we do believe a good 1,000 tombs uh, have been found dated between 430 and 426 BC, just right outside of Athens. Now, obviously, those were tombs of much more wealthy people. So you can assume that the death toll of the actual city was much, much higher than that. And again, it's it's impossible really to tell. Yeah, well, I'm sure if they were, if archaeologists were to find a mass grave uh, in that same general area, that that might be a, another clue. I'm sure they found many other uh, sites that they could, you know, put to that. But keep in mind that funeral pyres were the tradition in sure. ancient Greece. And so those type of burials were less common to be found. But you can still find the remnants of burnt bone and ash and, and things of that nature. But that makes, you know, finding a pathology really, really, really difficult. Sure, of course. Well, then, we've talked about the Egyptians, we've talked about the Greeks. How about the Romans? Did they have a plague? Oh, the Romans. Yes. Well, depending, of course, on which form. Because I know for sure the Byzantine Empire had a couple yes. of plagues. Well, again, plagues... Are, are not exclusive to just uh, to just Rome, but they are certainly one of the best recorded. Uh, and we actually, by that point in Rome, have a much clearer idea of how many people uh, were being killed 
by these devastating diseases. Because the Romans were very good at documenting everything. Absolutely. They had perfected the idea of a census. Um, they had a very good understanding of what their populations were and where they were and what they were doing and how they were dying. And during the, the reign of Marcus Aurelius, uh, those of you who've watched Gladiator, you know who I'm very loosely talking about, uh, Marcus Aurelius was known to have uh, suffered through a very terrible time where uh, the what is known as the Antonine Plague, uh, which dated from 165 to 180. So you're talking about a period of, what is that? About 15 years. Okay, 15 years. This is a time period where you have widespread, and, and truly you can see just how easy it is to spread disease when you have an empire. This is when you have these widespread pandemics really taking shape because now we can catalog and see more or less exactly where it started, where it was coming in, uh, and how it is that it would eventually spread to what was then the world, keep right. in mind, at least from the perspective of, of Western society. That was the world. Uh, this is also oftentimes referred to as the P Plague of Galen. Uh, Galen, who was a, uh, a historian of the time, a physician and a writer, he was recording the events of some of the first outbreaks of the disease. So we know because he was traveling along with Roman uh, army as it was in Asia Minor, uh, trying to put down uh, rebellion and also the uh, uh, invasion, uh, you'll find that uh, he records some of the first instances of this terrible fever accompanied by diarrhea, accompanied by inflammation of the, of the larynx, uh, including also some of these uh, dry erupting skin pustules. Uh, yeah, not, not a pretty picture that we're painting here. And we're almost certainly at that point then uh, painting either, you know, smallpox or possibly the measles. Almost certainly smallpox, though, is, is what is considered to be most likely. So here's this, this disease that's being brought in by invaders who are bringing it back through these extremely well-developed Roman trade routes, and they are spreading it like wildfire. And by the time that it gets to the Roman capital, at the height of the disease, nearly 2,000 people a day would die in Rome. Wow. That's a, I mean, that's a huge number when you think about it. Approximately one quarter of the entire uh, infected population would die. And that's of the entire empire, not just of Rome. That's the entire empire, because what we see happening is, yes, certainly it gets to Rome and it devastates, and it devastates up and down the Italian peninsula, uh, but it also moves forward north into the Germanic tribes, and then moves out west to Gaul. Right. And all these Roman outposts are being hit severely, and the Roman legions are being decimated. The Romans are having a really hard time keeping a standing army because everyone is getting sick. And as we would see time and time again, soldiers are very susceptible to this kind of illness. Their bodies are put under a great deal of stress. They're oftentimes put out in the elements. They're many times malnourished if they're not getting the proper supplies. Sure. And when you're fighting West in Gaul and North in Germanica, urine out of your elements. And yeah. it's, it's a bad situation. Very bad situation. Sure. It's also depending on the season, right? Because if it's in if it's in winter, I mean, it's, a, it's almost a, a... It's a death a, sentence. Exactly. Yeah. Nearly 5 million people are estimated to have died throughout the Roman Empire. How many? 5 million. 5 million. Okay. That sounds small by modern or more by, by latter pandemic standards, but 5 million people in the 
first or second century is a pretty big number of people. Oh, it's it's huge. Um, and it was seen as being a very big eye-opener, because we know that Marcus Aurelius was a very interesting Roman emperor. Uh, he was known to be a philosopher. He was known to have been very esoteric in his writings, a very stoic individual. Uh, and he wrote of the pain and suffering of the people of this terrible disease, which some people have even speculated may have been the cause of his own death. Mm. Uh, certainly it was the cause of his, of his uh, co-regent, who was ruling alongside him, uh, Lucian uh, Varus. Uh, who certainly died of the uh, the disease. We know that because it's been recorded. So here's this horrible outbreak of smallpox. But what's interesting that happens then is it lays the foundation for the decimation of Native Americans. And I say this because we, as now Europeans, ended up getting a whole new immunity to smallpox. We became much more resilient to it, uh, to the point where you know, you would have further outbreaks that would occur, but they become less and less dramatic because we were evolving in a way that we were protecting ourselves naturally from it. So then when, you know, explorers to the new world go, they bring terrible disease with them, and smallpox then starts wiping out enormous numbers of people in in the Americas. Uh, About 90% of the Massachusetts Native Americans were killed by smallpox. Yeah. That did lead to some very small immunity being passed by the survivors who were absorbed into neighboring tribes, but nearly 60% of those surrounding tribes were killed by smallpox. Yeah, uh, We see, as other diseases had spread, and we'll talk about the Spanish flu, that also hit Native American populations, you know, many hundred years after the uh, first landings in the New World. But these now surviving populations in America were being killed by sure. influenza, even. So at a much greater degree than just about anyone well, else. Well, let's, let's put, put a break on that for a second, because in some of the... Obviously, you've done the more research this episode than I have, and I, I have no illusions about that. <laughs> but what I do know is that uh, the Aztecs have documentation of their people yes. suffering from smallpox. So... In North America, still, there there was something, but it was a far, obviously, the south, southern part of the country. So different tribe, different different culture altogether. What I do find interesting, though, is that, well, how did this disease spread? Because it's is it possible that it could have developed on its own on the other part of the country? Probably not. So I would say almost certainly not, just because of the very fact that it spreads so quickly and so in such a devastating fashion that the, the odds of it suddenly appearing out of nowhere like that is just not possible. Sure. So that begs the question, how did it spread? Well, my, my hypothesis would be, and I'm sure there's someone who actually has done the research for this, uh, would be either um, insects or birds, more than likely, because the migration patterns of those kind of types of animals can be so far-reaching in mileage, uh, it might actually have... Well, to go between continents. No, it was humans. Because remember, we weren't just in the New World in the North. We were in the New World in the South. So you think we spread it through oh, just by human I can immunity? guarantee you. Okay. It was the Spanish conquistadors who were coming on in who were also bringing smallpox with them. To be, to be fair, I didn't go into too much detail. I thought it was before the Europeans had gotten there. So that- No. The first, the first outbreaks of smallpox are brought in directly by Europeans. Throughout the entirety of North America? Yes. Okay. Smallpox just didn't exist as, as a disease in that part of the Fair world. Fair enough. Well, it is interesting, though, because I've a long time been fascinated by infectious diseases. 
Uh, and I know it sounds like a really weird thing to say, but when you are a historian and you look at the way that history is shaped, you look at the way that civilizations can fall on a dime, disease is oftentimes one of those contributing factors. Mm-hmm. And it is really fascinating the way that it can lead to some of the most dramatic changes that have happened in our world. Sure. I mean, you could argue that had it not been for the smallpox pandemic toward the Native Americans, we would have had a very different outcome of colonialism. Oh, very different. If it wasn't for our accidental, then turned into intentional germ warfare, uh, we would have had much fiercer resistance. Because think about it, right? Uh, You're dealing with a population who know the land because they've lived on it their entire lives. They know everything about it. They know how to fight. They have technically, in my opinion, superior weaponry. Even though, yes, we had steel swords and we had muskets, muskets are horribly inaccurate. You have to be pretty close. And even though they're very intimidating... And they take time to load, too. Yeah, they take time to load. So that intimidation factor, after you've encountered one the first time and then successfully killed somebody with a bow and arrow, you're fine. Yeah. You can go back there and keep doing it. If it wasn't for disease the Native Americans would have put up even more of a fight if they could have. And it would have been a very different outcome. Uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Really great book. Some people dispute the the findings in it, and I do too to some degree. But it is very true that um, germs are very effective when it comes to uh, to warfare. Oh, um, certainly, yeah. And that actually, interestingly enough, brings us to our next outbreak. <laughs> All right. I love how it's 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 almost become kind of like a variety show. <laughs> and now, cholera. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? <laughs> no, actually, we're not going to talk about cholera just yet. <laughs> we will get to cholera. You set them up and then you... I took it away. No, it's the bubonic plague again. Okay, but, Be- not, but not in Europe yet. We haven't gotten there yet. No, it is in Europe. It is in Europe, okay. It is in Europe. But it's the, or the first one, not the one that in the, from the 1400s. That's correct. See, a lot of people look at the Black Death, and that's their understanding of the bubonic plague. Yeah. And rightfully so. It was the most devastating outbreak of the bubonic plague that's sure. ever been seen. But before that, there was the very famous plague of Justinian. And this plague, again, to put it into context, um, pretty much took place within the course of a single year. This, is, this is in the 800s, if I'm not mistaken. No, a little bit earlier than that. This is in 541 oh. to 542. Thank you. Dates were never my strong suit. <clears throat> uh, no worries. But in the course of a single year, 25 million people died. Think about that for a moment. And this is only 500 years after what we're talking about with with the Roman Empire. Uh, so that killed 5 million people. This, this has killed 20... 25 million people. Now, keep in mind, the population had recovered since then, right? Of so course. There was growth going on. Uh, and you did have a larger population to infect, but even still, 25 million people uh, in the you know sixth century is crazy, absolutely crazy. That that is a huge amount of people dying. And what's interesting is that rather than seeing the introduction of bubonic plague come from the Near East, like we had with the Syria and Egypt connection, you actually find it happening now in China. And China would then continue to be the top three introductions to the most deadly of all bubonic plague outbreaks. Interesting. Yeah. And you think about, why is that? Why would China be this red zone? Okay. And Climate? I don't know. Partially, yes. It has more to do with the carriers of the initial fleas, right? So we're talking about rats. We're also talking about mormonts. So we're talking about small rodents that are carrying this. And there are a lot of rodents, small rodents, in China. 
There's actually a very good number of them. And once the Silk Road had opened, once you started having now connection with the East and the West... Now we have trade routes, and now we have those rodents passing along on those trade routes. Same way it happened in Egypt. Exactly. Mm. And whereas the local populace have a much greater resistance because they've been living with these parasites and their bacterium for much longer, they were not as adversely affected. It was the new populations that were getting affected. You hear that, folks? World trade is bad. Shut your doors. <laughs> Buy everything American. We make everything now. It's the only way we'll survive. But wait a minute. We have <laughs> listeners in Europe and Africa and Australia. What to each their own. <laughs> to each their own. Everyone cordon yourself <laughs> off. Uh, write petitions to your local government. Uh, build barricades, walls, if you can't afford to do so. And as long as we're ending world trade, we're also ending communications. So this actually be our last episode, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we're cutting it off of the, of the pass, so yeah. to speak. And what a way to end such a dismal note, too. <laughs> with, with, with disease. <clears throat> All right. Well, anyhow, back to Justinian I. A survivor of the plague, mind you. Oh, interesting. I didn't know. So the royal family, as it were, I guess the imperial family, was not immune to uh, these oh, maladies. of course not. Just because they did live in a generally more sanitary condition doesn't mean that they're not close to each other. And if it were to be introduced, because you have people who are out fighting, those who are out fighting are getting infected, they're coming back and reporting to those who are important, those who are important are coming to the emperor. They're spreading disease. Uh, and as we know with the bubonic plague, it's this nasty little disease that if it doesn't kill you, does get you to the to the very door of death. Yeah. Um, and Justinian was no exception to that. So even their emperor was to be, was to be struck ill with this. Uh, we find that with this particular outbreak, Constantinople was hit uh, very hard. There are estimates that between five and 10,000 people were dying daily. To the wow. point where the bodies were literally piling up in the streets. They did not have the proper means by which to dispose of them. And as these, and I hate to paint these grim pictures, but as these corpses were decaying now, they were breeding grounds for further disease to be spread. And these people who were being paid to be in contact with the bodies were also getting sick. And it got to the point where there were no one left to take care of the dead bodies. And so the disease continued to spread and continued to spread. And it's no big surprise then that it would, it would be so destructive and cause so many deaths and would have lasting and rippling effects. Think about Byzantine period uh, warfare at this time. They were going out after everyone. They were going after Carthage. They were trying to retake Italy. They were all over the place. They were trying to hold up the Roman Empire is what they were trying to do. Yeah, exactly. And if it wasn't for the plague... There are many historians who believe that they could have actually done it, that they could have reunited the Roman Empire for the first time in you know a couple hundred years. It would have been East and West brought back together but under Eastern leadership. But because of the uh, severe casualties that were involved, trying to sustain an army during sure. that time is practically impossible. But what blows my mind is if you think about Justinian, what's he doing this whole time? He's building. He's creating these magnificent works like the Hagia Sophia. Yeah. He's allocating all this money towards all these projects, yet he's not sending it where it needs to be. He's not sending it to the people to get them healthy and prevent this sure. disease from spreading. So, oh, bad idea. Not good. But what's interesting is that it would be not for another 750 years that we would have another major outbreak. 
So a very long time. And if you think about 750 years during the Dark Ages... For that to be a relatively pandemic-free period of time is pretty unusual. Not only is it unusual, but the lessons are forgotten about, right? Yeah. So here's this devastating 25 million people who are wiped out. But then you have a situation where nobody remembers it any longer. And the Dark Ages were not known for their accurate recording of history. And no, being that's the reason on. why they were called the Dark Ages. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's because they, well, aside from the fact that they had thought they had lost many of the works of the Romans, but exactly, they had nothing to base their knowledge off of as far as documentation is concerned. Yeah. And so, you know, when we have another situation where we have the Silk Road coming out again, Actually, this is more of the time of the Silk Road, whereas earlier it would have still been more warfare and what have you would have been spreading this from the East. But sure. trade would have also been coming from the East. But now the Silk Road was really established. And this was a time when now you had this perfect storm. It had been many, many years before a major outbreak like this had happened. Europe was going through a, the mini ice age, right? So it was much, much colder. And what happens with that is that the plows that are normally able to run through the soil perfectly are running into trouble. They're not able to plow as quickly. They're not able to sow as many fields. The quality, so there's a shortage of food. Yeah. Well, the quality of soil is also bad. So they're yeah. starving. They're running out of food. People are malnourished. But people aren't stopping having babies. They're having five or six children to the average household in Europe at that sure. time. That's also because children were essential to your business, to your own ability to survive because you needed them to help produce food. Oh, yeah. They were your workforce. Exactly. Uh, but they were also likely to be carriers. Yeah, unfortunately. When something like this would happen, right? Sure. Because uh, bubonic plague affects the weak and the young and the elderly and those who are now a majority in the population of Europe at that time. Well, you brought it to Egypt. I'm going to have to bring it to Catholicism for a second. We're going to bridge the gap here, okay? Well, as we do. As we do. Because here's what I find really, really important. When the Black Death starts to appear in Europe, the Catholic Church is at the peak of its power. Okay? I mean, this is a point in time when I think I've mentioned in other episodes where kings aren't coronated unless the Pope is the one who does it. Right. Or puts his blessing on it. That's how powerful the Church is at this point. Everything is indoctrinated by the Church. And the belief at this time was very simple. If you were good, good things happened to you. If you were bad, bad things happened to you. So therefore, if something bad happened to you, you must have been a wicked person. There right. was some sort of divine punishment that was being uh, set upon you. Can you imagine if that was really true in the celebrity population of the United States? Oh, don't get me started with that. <laughs> but Can you imagine poor Charlie Sheen? Anyway, go ahead. Here's what challenges that, right? So the church has said this and has indoctrinated this worldview for, for centuries at this point. And yet now, good people are being infected with bubonic plague. Yeah. And it's spreading like wildfire, yeah, and literally. It's, and it's, that's a groundbreaking thought to have. What have I done to deserve this? I've obeyed the rules of the church. I've done everything that I was supposed to have done. Why is my family wiped out and I'm the only survivor to now sure. suffer through this? And you could argue that had it not been for the bubonic plague, there may not have been a Protestant Reformation. Because if you think about it, if the church is never questioned, there's no reason to have alternative 
thoughts about church teachings, right? Yeah. This was one of the first times where the church was kind of wrong, you know, that they they couldn't explain why this was happening, and therefore that plants the seed of doubt in the minds of many, many people, right? Martin Luther being one of them, but he, even though he came a little bit later on. So this is a very important event in world history because it would change the religion of the, eventually change the religion of the continent. It would yep. change the population, obviously. We haven't talked about the, the body count for this, but it is unbelievable at how many people were killed with this. And it, it actually was kind of the first time where you, I think you saw drastic measures being taken. Uh, oh yeah. Entire again. towns, villages, completely and totally quarantined. Uh, you found the de- the development and the creation of medical equipment that did not exist before this point. You had the very first biohazard suits that were being created. <laughs> and these very famous uh, plague doctors. And they would wear these long beak-like masks. And they would put various herbs and what have you in the beak of the mask. And it was thought to actually uh, slow the the disease before it would reach them. Uh, it didn't exactly work, but you had this, you can imagine being in the delirium. At least help with the smell. Maybe, yeah, it would help with the smell, certainly. But you, you would have the, can you imagine this poor person laying on their bed, and the symptoms of bubonic plague are terrible. They're, they're absolutely awful because your body is essentially rotting from the inside out. Yeah, you, you're suffering from uh, necrosis, right? So you're, you're suffering from cell damage, and it's happening usually in your extremities. Uh, so your fingers and toes are literally turning black and are decaying and, and getting ready to, you know, be snapped off and fall off. They're that, they're that, that's that, that's how bad it really is. Uh, you are extremely thirsty all the time. You're suffering from extremely high fevers. You're suffering from delirium because of them. And then this freaking dude walks into the room wearing the most terrifying Halloween mask you could possibly find with a large hat and a black coat. I would and die he says, from I'm fear. I'm here to help you. <laughs> You're like, bullshit. (laughs) I wonder how many people died of heart attacks because these terrifying-looking people walked to their their homes while they were in distress. They're dead. (laughs) Well, it's like got them. Yeah. (laughs) On to the next house to do my healing. (laughs) But it it is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Sure. Um, And you you think about the scale and how quickly it also spread because the, the first indications... Uh, in about um, 1836, uh, or excuse me, 1846, uh, you have it being introduced into Eastern Europe. Uh, it ravages much of what is modern-day Turkey, and then quickly moves into uh, Southern Europe, right? So into around Greece and Rome and and, and the areas of, uh, and around there in France and Spain. Uh, moves up quickly from there, uh, jumps the English Channel and ends up in London, uh, and then kind of gets slowed down as it starts to reemerge back towards northern Eastern Europe. Now, up are into are we still on the, the Black Death, or are we moving on? No, to, we're on the plague. I thought I thought Black I heard 1800s. That's why I was asking. Sorry, I, I may have said it, but 1346 is what I meant to say. If I, okay. if I said something different, okay, uh, was the starting point for that, and it keeps moving forward. Sure. Uh, interestingly enough, though, the areas in around like uh, Poland uh, were very, very much not affected. And you had these very much smaller spread out populations who were very paranoid after hearing years of horror stories uh, who were closing themselves off and preventing themselves from, from bringing the disease in great numbers. Uh, you even had a situation where a small village in, in England closed itself off for nearly a year. And when people had finally braved uh, 
the idea of going into that village to, to see what had happened to all of them, they were shocked to find survivors. And this is one of the most interesting stories of the Black Death, is this population and community who, while many people died, in some cases there would be a single remaining family member of 11 or 12 people, they had a mutation in their bodies that gave them a resistance to the plague. And the funny thing about the plague is it, it actually uses your own immune system against you. So it, it uses it to spread the disease quicker because all these white blood cells are being sent to fight the infection of this bacterium that's in your body. But then the bacteria tricks the white blood cell into thinking that it's killed it. In reality, it clings on to the white blood cell. And normally, white blood cells accumulate and get released from the body once they've done their job in the form of like pus, for example. But that doesn't happen initially. Instead, it starts circulating the bacterium further and further around your body. What this mutation ends up doing is essentially saying no and killing the bacterium the way that it's supposed to. So what do you do when almost your entire population has been wiped out in your village and you survive? Uh, you get that person to reproduce as quickly as possible. Hell yeah, you do. You, <laughs> you, you, you pair up immediately. Come on, This folks. sounds like the basis of a bad adult novel. I'm just <laughs> saying. I'm just saying. That would be an amazing idea. <laughs> Erotic literature based off of the Black Death. The original uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. <laughs> you, Fifty Shades of Black. <laughs> exactly. Fifty Shades of Black. There you go. Fifty Shades of Black Death. Um, <clears throat> so... But, but, you know, Unbelievable. It's, it is incredible because there's another disease in the modern world today that functions a very similar fashion. Of course, HIV. HIV. And this population in Europe have a resilience to HIV. They're not immune to it. Really? Okay? Yes. The same, and they're, they're... Yes, they are the descendants of these people. And wow. they carried this genetic marker with them. And they have a resilience to HIV, not... You know, a hundred percent defense. It's a, it's a slow. It would just be a slow progression. Very slow, if it happening at all, because wow. the HIV virus can be fought off. Uh, that's why uh, you know retrovirals are introduced into uh, people who've come in contact with HIV positive blood as quickly as possible. And in those situations, they've been able to to kill the virus completely before it takes effect and and becomes full blown HIV, which would eventually turn into full blown AIDS. Right. So these people have a kind of natural defense to that. Uh, and they are and have been undergone uh, scrutiny and, and, you know, trying to do uh, an analysis of their of that genome and figuring out how it could potentially be a, a weapon against uh, AIDS in the future. Well, that's fascinating. And it's good that there's a glimmer of hope from there because England itself was hit one of the hardest by, by the Black Plague. And I believe there are some numbers that estimate that 50% of London was wiped yeah, out. in or around there. We, yeah. we haven't even talked about the total death toll. No, we either. haven't. Uh, with this, with this initial outbreak, we're we're talking about anywhere between thirty and sixty percent of Europe's population gone. At this point, it's not even decimation; it's just cutting swaths through the entire continent. Foom, foom, foom! Millions dead. It's terrifying. And do we have the, the counts for that? I'm sorry. Anywhere, uh, it's estimated anywhere between about a hundred thousand and two hundred. Or excuse me, 100 million and 200 million people. 200 million people in the 1400s. Yeah, potentially that high. Nobody wow. really knows. Again, I've heard estimates as low as 50 million, but I I think it's probably closer to 100 million or higher. Wow. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And we find you know many examples of these mass graves that are uncovered from this time period, and you can just see 
for one, it's not at, that long ago. So the bodies tend to not disarticulate as quickly. And you find these almost complete skeletons in some situations, just thrown and laying on top of one another from these massive graves. Yeah. So we've, we're almost out of time here. So let's skip forward to the next major one, which would be Spanish flu, right? Well, yes and no. I wouldn't call that the next major one. There were several outbreaks of cholera in Asia that were devastating. Sure. Millions and millions of people dying in Asia Major, uh, dying in India. Uh, I know that we don't have a lot of time, uh, but I do want to just touch on those real quick because you had these periods in the 19th century, uh, the early 19th century, right? So around the 1816 range right there for periods of 10, 15 years at a time. Uh, and then other times where it would stop for a little bit of 10 or 15 years or so, it would seem. And then you would have these outbreaks happening again and again. And the first kind of big cholera outbreaks were going on in Asia and then passed over into Europe. Uh, again, along trade routes. Exactly. And then, you know, another 10, 15 years later, you have another outbreak. But now it's starting to get to North America because what's just recently happened, well, America's declared its independence. It's now... Uh, becoming more of a major player on the on the world economic uh, scale, yeah. world economic scale. So by 1829, stuff's going to America, and cholera is actually coming along with it. And then you have another big outbreak, the third huge cholera outbreak, which, when it gets introduced into Russia in the 1850s, kills nearly a million people. Wow! And that's just in Russia, right? So we're talking about 25 million, 50 million, 100 million being killed throughout all of Europe. Russia alone sees a death toll of nearly 1 million people. Wow. So we had to mention those. I know that, however, what is the most notable, probably the most damaging within recent memory, what is still with us today, is influenza. Yeah. It's been the basis for a lot of the more modern pandemics too not just spanish flu but like h1n1 was the big deal a couple of years ago h1n1 is the same parent virus as the one yeah. that infected us in 18 uh, in the 1918s exactly um, or 1918 i should say uh it is a mutation it is different it is a less virulent strain but it's the same thing sure. people and it can happen again but we should talk about what happened the first time yeah, we did. Well, also, I want to talk about, just real quick, just to mention, since we were on the topic of the bubonic plague, that it did have a brief reemergence in uh, in San Francisco, of all places. Oh, from, that's right. From 1900 to 1904, and uh, again, brought to it from China. Yeah. Uh, due to, of course, the large Chinese population that had immigrated to the United States. And the rats that came along with the ships. Of course. Um, very large number of people died. Um Interesting that there was a, the politics that went into play because the uh, the mayor of San Francisco at the time, uh, which let me pull up his name here real quick, uh, Mayor James D. Phelan, he did acknowledge it was happening and he thought that Chinatown uh, had become a public health hazard. And uh, unfortunately, it led to some race-based discrimination because it thought that Chinese Americans were... were or filthy people. Um, and you know, this is a horrible thing that repeats itself because with the Black Death, what you ended up having happening after that was a whole new um, reemergence of anti-Semitism in Europe because they were blaming the Jews for bringing the carrier of the plague. Uh, in addition to the lepers who were there in many communities, uh, 
the poor. Anyone who was a foreigner was thought to have been the carrier for it. So all this discrimination happens as a result of the Black Death, in addition to now, again, what we're seeing closer to the end of the last century, you know, with the, with the Chinese-American population. Well, not only that, but, like, the governor of California at the time, Henry Gage, denied that there was even a plague. In fact, he blocked a federal commission from using uh, UC Berkeley's, at the time, uh, laboratories to, who, who uh, or at the time were studying the outbreak. They blocked the federal commission from, from looking at those studies. I, I guess he was just worried about the news breaking out, the thinking that California was a, was a risk yeah. for any kind. Uh, so, as you would expect, a very dark note, unfortunately, in California's history. But um, same plague, same plague. And there was a brief re-emergence shortly after the 1906 earthquake, though it wasn't just in Chinatown. It was in random parts, but it also went away very quickly. Too. That's all of you. I mean, there's more details on that, but that's yeah. basically the long and the short of one of the American forms of bubonic plague. Right. Uh, moving back, though, to Spanish influenza. Which is so inappropriately named. The Spanish flu has absolutely nothing to do with Spain. Not really. And it's interesting because this, when this happened, think about the world theater at the moment, the events that were going on. This is just after World War I. No, no, this is during World War I. Wait, this is 1918, right? Yes, I did. This is just before the end of the First World War. This is when America gets involved with the war. Okay. Because the war had been going on and raging in Europe before this for several years. Uh, so you have all of these troops who we know through the horror stories of the First World War the trench warfare that was going on, the deplorable conditions that these mustard people were gas. in. Mustard gas, chemical warfare on a terrible For the first level. time, yeah. Yep. Uh, well, yes, well, yes, no. Mass-produced yes. Mass produced chemical warfare. True modern chemical warfare, yes. Um, and what you have happening is the immune systems being depleted of a lot, a lot of people. So the flu, as it does pretty much every year, spreads around the globe. This happens today, it'll happen next year, it'll happen the year after that. And it happened earlier. It happened in and around 1917 and in earlier 1918. And it wasn't that bad of a flu. People got sick, but people weren't dying on enormous scales. But what happened is it mutated. And it mutated very, very suddenly. And we think that the first indication of this first flu probably happened somewhere in the United States. They don't know. They're not able to completely pin that down. Um, I believe that uh, the location that is oftentimes cited as being the um, the kind of real flashpoint for the more severe form was uh, in the hospital camps in France from all these troops that were coming from the line. And the way the flu works normally is it attacks the young and the old. It attacks people who have depleted immune systems or not developed immune systems. And that's the way it did the first time. But when it mutated, it decided it wanted to play a different trick. And it started attacking people with healthy immune systems and using their immune systems against them, not unlike what happened with the Black Death. So now you have the young, the 20 to 40 aged individuals who are considered young and healthy, who are dropping dead, who are getting extremely sick. And what they're mostly dying from is not necessarily influenza, but the other diseases and uh, ailments that can come with influenza, like pneumonia. And if pneumonia is not treated quickly enough or treated inappropriately, like with heavy, heavy doses of aspirin, uh, then you have a serious situation where you have a lot of people dying. And when you have the young and the healthy who are now the carriers, 
this is the worst combination for warfare. Because think about it. All of these young kids, some of them as young as 16 or 15 if they could forge their, their papers, right, were going off to fight in the First World War. They were bringing the flu with them. It mutates, and when normally you get a really bad sickness, what do you do? Well, you'd rest and let it... Yeah, it, you rest. You stay home, right? Exactly. You, cl- you kind of close yourself off. You isolate yourself from the rest of the population, and you don't get other people sick. You might die, but other people aren't going to die. If you're a soldier, you don't have that liberty. You can't go to your commanding officer, um, uh, Colonel, uh, <coughs> I'm not really feeling this whole battle. I kind of got some congestion. <coughs> Can I stay behind the lines? That doesn't happen. <laughs> Just throwing it out there. You go out there and you fight. And if you carry this resilient, nasty form of the disease with you, and you go into these trenches, you're going to spread it to everyone around you. Sure. There are some people who say that the First World War, the tide was turned against the Central Powers because of influenza. Now, obviously, this is very controversial because America's involvement in the war greatly assisted. The French and British troops were making comebacks. They were slowly taking territory through their trench warfare, as they had been doing for years. Um, But it wasn't helping the Germans that so many of their people were actually dying faster from influenza. A lot of people don't realize this, but American, British, and French troops, while still dying at alarming rates, were dying less often from the disease than their German counterparts were, and their Austrian counterparts. They were in even worse shape supply-wise, and they were, uh, they were actually dying in much greater number. Now, that's not to say, again, that that was the total reason for it, but I'm sure it was a contributing factor. Uh, and there are many stories, including stories of my own family, of people who had died from the Spanish flu, uh, or who had become very, very ill from the yeah. Spanish flu, including my uh, great aunt, Anne, who thankfully survived and lived, but was extremely sick as a child uh, because of her, the illness that she had. This was something that people, because there was a terrible war on, didn't want to talk about. Of course. Nobody wanted to acknowledge it was going on. Well, when you have war and pestilence at the same time, that's two of the four signs of the apocalypse. So, <laughs> you know, let's not, let's try to avoid one. Yeah. Usually one is, is, is enough to handle, but. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if the supply chains for the soldiers is out there, there's famine. So now all we need is one more and we're, we're dead ringer. So. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> but this is actually how it gets the, the name, the Spanish flu, because. While Spain was not uh, involved in the war effort, it was free to have no censorship in its media. So all of these reports of Spain being hit by this terrible sickness was no different than America, or France, or England, or Germany for that matter. It was just, it wasn't, you know, it was being reported about. It was actually being talked about. In America, it was going on around everybody, but people weren't talking about it. They didn't want to talk about it. And when they looked in the obituaries, because of the nature of the disease, they were seeing these young people dying in the war and these young people dying of the flu. And you didn't even bother seeing the reason. You just looked at the dates that they had lived. And you saw a young person, young person, young person, young person. And you just kind of knew. And you just assumed it was the war because you didn't want it to be the Spanish influenza. Right. And that was a bad idea because if you don't have knowledge, you're going to have suffering. People were not 
being aware of it. They were not being safe about it until it got to a point where 500 million people around the globe were sick with influenza. And folks, to put this in perspective, in 1850, around the dawn of the industrial era, the world population was 1 billion people. Yeah. Okay. Let's Half assume, of the world was yeah, sick. Yeah. Let's assuming maybe that that, that it had doubled at this, by this point in time mm-hmm. with mechanization being what it was. That's still one quarter of the entire world being sick. Right. Which is unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you had between fifty and one hundred million people die wow. as a result. Uh, between three to five percent of the world's population was killed. And with that, you had these terrible outbreaks hitting these remote locations in the world that were not prepared for it at all. The Polynesian islands. In some cases, up to 60% of an island's population would be gone, decimated. There were entire towns in Canada and Alaska that were wiped off the face of the earth. Wow. They were all gone. They were dead. Everybody died. It was fascinating because in Western Samoa, not American Samoa, but Western Samoa, you had, uh, gosh, I don't remember exactly what it was. I want to say it was maybe like 10 to 15% of the population killed. Might not have been that high, but still a dramatic amount of the population dying. And then in American Samoa, because they had completely coordinated off, they wouldn't allow any ships coming in or out. Not a single person died. Huh. Not one person died from the flu. Interesting. And it was because uh, there are people there who were sick, but they just, they they got over it. There was going to be people who were going to be sick, but, you know, these were people who maybe had a less virulent strain of it. Mm. So it it didn't have the opportunity to bring in the nastier stuff. And one very interesting thing that I'll kind of leave this on, because this, I think, is probably going to be a good stopping point for us. Yeah. Uh, There was a, a theory that was put out back a few years ago that many of the deaths in America and other places in the world could have been prevented if it wasn't for aspirin. Now, aspirin had recently essentially had its patent run out and it was now being produced by any company who wanted to make it. And there had been reports in 1918 uh, where you had you know, suggestions of giving out very large doses of aspirin, like larger than we would even recommend today. And the aspirin poisoning, which is a very real thing, could have led to the the hastened death of many of these people. Now, that is kind of an out there theory, and there's a lot of people who dispute it, but I can see it as being a contributing factor. Uh, Now, this very clear realization that things are going on, communities in the United States and around the world are shutting down. They're not allowing people to shop in their shops. People are really scared of what's happening now that you can't get past the fact that the media is censoring it. It's happening. And here are these people who want to make money. And they're going to sell aspirin as much as they possibly can, as fast as they can. And people will buy it because they'll believe that it can be a cure. And then they end up overtaking it and killing themselves another way. Sure. Yeah. So certainly it doesn't account for all the deaths, but I can definitely see it as a possibility for many of them. Sure. Well, or, if you, or some of them. But if you're also having too much aspirin, the effects that it has in your body will also inadvertently affect your immune system as right. well. So right. that, that would make... At least you won't die of a heart sense. attack. That's true. At least you won't <laughs> have a heart attack. <clears throat> I think we can wrap this up by saying that we've seen how pandemics have had major influences on world events. And that we can see that sometimes a major event may have happened differently had it not been for this pandemic. So I think the big thing is to look at what's going on today, right? We have 
still pandemic proportions of HIV and AIDS going on in Africa, where it's projected that 90 to 100 million people will die of it by the year 2025. Right. And, you know, and we didn't say this before, and I want to say it now, that about 75 million people did die of the Spanish flu. We forgot to throw that statistic out there. 25 million people have died of AIDS. But like you're saying, in the way that it's spreading, that 90 million that you're talking about, that's in Africa alone. We're talking about 25 million around the world right now, 90 million in Africa by 2025. That number will skyrocket in other places as well. And you'll have an even larger number of people potentially dying from AIDS. So, folks, let's um, be good people here. And let's say, you know what? Put a message out there. Donate to it to the AIDS Foundation. Donate to some place where you know that there's research being done to help fight diseases Absolutely. Like, the, like this. Um, any charity that you guys can have. Because we can see how bad these pandemics can can be and how critical it can be toward the world culture as yeah. it is. So don't, anything we can do to fight it. Don't let AIDS become the next black death. Exactly. Um, and it's a, a terrible killer. Yeah. Because it's so slow, and it's so silent, yeah. and it's so easily transmittable because of sex. Uh, be smart about your sex. Yeah. Uh, there has been so much effort done in Africa. Uh, AIDS in Africa has been a, an amazing foundation that has continued to do amazing work to this very day, to this very moment. And so much of their, their work has been done in education, in making sure that people are aware that sex can transmit AIDS. Uh, and to have and practice protective sex uh, with all of your partners. And, you know, it, it was alarming because uh, in some places in Africa, as much as at one point, 70% of pregnant women were HIV po- positive. Yeah, and now it's about 30%. But yeah. it's still, that's still a very, very high number. And we've gotten kind of complacent with it in the United States because we have a better healthcare system. We have better yep. resources. We've developed drugs now that can treat people right like hiv that. positive and AIDS positive people are living longer uh healthier lives exactly but you know you're right though there is a certain complacency as a society as a whole i would say um there are however many great foundations that are out there that are doing great work and and i think that's a great idea brian um normally we ask for a donation to nerdonomy tonight we're asking you to donate to uh to an aids foundation yeah i agree 100 percent I'm, I'm glad we had this this episode because I wasn't sure where we were gonna, where we were going to go with it, but yeah. no, but it's been a really good one, I think. It's a little deeper, I think, than we normally do. We we normally take a little bit of a lighter, more kind of jovial approach to things, um, which is kind of hard to do when you're talking about the the mass death of millions. Yeah, <laughs> and and we, but we did bring it home to something that was very relevant and to something that's happening now. Sure. So um, I'm quite proud of ourselves. We did something good. Yeah. Huzzah. Um, and folks, if you've liked the episode that you heard tonight, and this is your first time listening to us, hi, how's it going? Howdy. Welcome. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcasts on both iTunes and Stitcher Radio or whatever podcast directory you find us on. And of course, go to our website, nerdarmy.com, where you can find our other podcast, Nerds on Film, as well as means of contacting us directly. You can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at The Brickmont. And our company Twitter, of course, is at Nerdonomy. Follow us there. You get our links to our new episodes, new blog posts, all that good stuff. Until next time, stay nerdy and tune in next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye!